Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg, and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up, to the Byline Times podcast. This time, does London have too much power compared to other major UK cities? It is a question posed by Byline Times Chief Investigations Editor Sam Bright in his book published this week. It is called Fortress of Britain. The subtitle, though, gives you a pretty heavy hint about what Sam thinks. It is... It's why we need to save the country from its capital. Is it really that bad in the UK? Does London have such disproportionate power that it in some way infects or even poisons the body politic of this country? It's an important issue when government is so obsessed, officially at least anyway, with the notion of levelling up. We'll be chatting to Sam very, very shortly. But if you're listening along live on Byline Radio on your phone via the Twitter app, then you can ask to join in as well. There is a little purple microphone in the bottom left-hand corner of your screen. Just tap that if you want to request access. And if you've got something useful to say or a question to ask, we will let you in. And we do encourage people from all over the place to get involved here on Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast. Before we crack on as well, just a reminder that if you're enjoying Byline Radio or the podcast, please think about taking out a subscription to our brilliant monthly newspaper, The Byline Times, because that essentially pays for everything that we do. And uh, The Byline Times is a brilliant paper edited by my colleague, Hadeep Matharu. A great read. And it also funds Byline TV as well. So really a good investment. Very cheap, only £39 a year for your subscription. You can get details of how to subscribe over on our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. So welcome to Sam Bright. How are you doing, Sam? You all right? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Adrian. Yeah, How are you doing? Speak to you. you and I have uh, kind of, of talked about your book once or twice before, and I know I get a couple of name checks in it as well. <laughs> Fortress Britain. Why that title? Fortress London. Oh, sorry, Fortress right, London, right, Adrian. Forgive me. Fortress London. It's fine. I got it wrong right <laughs> at the start. My apologies. Fortress London. That makes much more sense. Anybody who <laughs> haven't read the book, I have it. Yeah, go on. <laughs> go on. But tell us about Fortress London. Go on. Yeah, so, I mean, it's really um, stemmed from the political and social focus in recent years on the great divides between uh, different parts of the country. Obviously, I guess in recent times, they haven't really been focused on, which is one of the major causes of Brexit, the fact that um, deprived communities and places that had stagnated um, for several years, if not decades, since the uh, industrial era, they sort of gave a, a, a punch in the ribs of the establishment through Brexit and said for the first time in quite a while that we are here and that we matter. Um, and as a result, a great deal of political attention has been paid to these big divides. And obviously we saw during the 2019 general election, plenty of former red wall seats in these industrial towns and cities flipping from Labour to the Conservatives. Um, and my book really um, channels these sort of debates, but also argues that um, the ways in which we frame current uh, conversations about regional inequality miss uh, the real glaring divide in modern Britain, which is between London, the all-powerful, all-consuming capital, and everywhere, pretty much everywhere, everywhere else apart from the wider southeast, which is, of course, within London's orbit. I mean, you know, you, you span from education, economics, demographics, um, the concentration of um, media and culture, politics, and uh, London's got it all. And it stands way ahead and in some cases um, far apart from the rest of the country which creates problems both for London, obviously housing being the primary one, but um, also for the rest of the country and our general sense of fairness, I think, in modern Britain. Yeah. Uh, you trace in your book the route that many bright young things take. And there's an early chapter about education and this idea that if people do well, they might gravitate from outlying towns, suburban centres into big city centres. But the city centre that they most gravitate towards to 
is London. And that, I mean, that's I, I was a student in the 1980s. That seems to have been inscribed in the way that we are now for decades. Yeah, I mean, people flock to London, literally flock there after um, graduating university. And I think lots of people who I know and who I've spoken to for this book don't necessarily want that to be the case. They perhaps go back home for a short period after university, consider their options in their hometown or city. And it's only when you look on the jobs boards and uh, see the salaries and just take an appraisal of the jobs market that you realise that there are just vast opportunities in London that aren't available in many of these places within hitting distance of of most people. And that, that's a real shame because, you know, as we both know, we've got really um, prominent, uh, lively uh, centres in the rest of the country that would be brilliant uh, incubators of, of young talent after university. But unfortunately, uh, London's just got such a hold over the nation's assets and particularly over the professional um, economy that there seems to be no other option for lots of people. And, and this, I think, presents a fundamental problem in terms of social mobility because you've got a young person, as I was graduating university, you know, I come from Huddersfield in West Yorkshire, it's, you know, roughly, I'd say three, three and a half hour round trip to get down to, to that London, as we used to call it. And um, to, to break into the capital takes a massive amount of, of um, income to do so, to be able to rent in the capital or just be, to be able to justify that cost to, to family members is, is tricky in itself. And so lots of people from, you know, small towns and, and cities like mine that are distant from the capital choose instead just simply not to make that voyage, not to make the journey down to London. And as a result, I think that you've got a real problem whereby the sort of um, the highest positions, uh, the most coveted roles in the modern economy are really um, available um, a lot more easily to Londoners than to people in other parts of the country. And for you know multiple successive governments that have talked about building a meritocracy in modern Britain, that really stands in opposition to that ideal. That's some really interesting statistics about the number of people who quit their towns or villages and go to London. This is your own research from the, or the research that you quote from the, the Centre for Towns shows that towns and villages in Britain have lost more than a million people aged under 25 since 1981, but they've gained more than 2 million people over 65. So this sense that London is young, it's vibrant, it's dynamic, and that other parts of the country, and particularly towns, you know, I'm thinking of places close to where I live, you know, Birmingham is a relatively young and vibrant city, but areas outside, places like Warsaw, West Bromwich, Wolverhampton, typified by an older population, a greying population, and mm. shops closing down and, and all that sort of thing. So uh, your stats prove that this is a real phenomenon. And that, I mean, the number of, uh, this is this is an amazing stat as well. It's one of the reasons I love the book, Sam. You know, <laughs> the, the, a quarter of all new graduates from UK universities in 2014 and 15 were working in London within six months. That's a quarter of all the graduates that this country produces, including 38% of Russell Group graduates, the so-called top universities with first class or upper second class degree. So London, in this sense, operates as a, as a vacuum, doesn't it? It sucks in so much of the bright young talent in this country and gives them places where they can work, places where they can then develop their careers, places which are not available perhaps in those outlying towns and cities of the UK. Yeah, certainly. And I think this creates a real social divide. Um, I think, uh, you know, we've seen that politically as you say, lots of people have disputed the phrase left behind communities. I think probably because they see it as perhaps a bit condescending, which I can I can understand entirely. But I think 
the nature of these places, as you say, they're um, populated by older people, predominantly less well-educated people, um, you know, not not people that are any less smart, I'd say, than, you know, so-called educated people. But, you know, in terms of their actual qualifications, they have fewer qualifications. Um, lower incomes um, tend to have a lack of uh, ethnic diversity, um, came of age, you know, during the industrial era and have now seen their, their high streets decline and uh, shop fronts uh, close. And, you know, the graffiti shop front is sort of the, the hallmark of, of these areas. Um, and then you've got London, as you say, which is very young and lots of these metropolitan areas, you know, Manchester, Liverpool, et cetera, uh, very young, diverse, educated. And as a result, you, you've kind of um, you've uh, in the way that the the modern British political system works, you've got lots of areas, metropolitan areas that will vote for the Labour Party. And then you've got lots of these left behind areas that will vote um, conservative. And the Conservative Party is is really um, making hay in these seats that it previously had simply no chance of winning. And this has fundamentally shifted the balance of power in modern politics. And it has sort of confined the Labour Party to these li- liberal metropolitan hubs. And, you know, over the past few years, it's been floundering um, in its attempts to try and win over um, more socially conservative, older voters, and perhaps to try and bridge this great social divide, this social de- geographic and um, political divide that we have now between uh, the metropolitan hubs and um, the Red Wall. Yeah, and an element of this, at least, is driven by political choice. You chart the decline of industry and engineering in places that are now described as the the Red Wall, I suppose, the industrial heartlands or the former industrial heartlands of the UK. And that that particularly applies where I live in the West Midlands, you know, a a centre of manufacturing. And these days there is still relatively high employment in this area, but many fewer jobs with the kind of specialist skills Mm. that gave an area an identity and we know that times change and that technologies change and there will inevitably be ups and downs in that process but i think it would be it would be wrong to ignore the role and you certainly don't ignore the role but margaret thatcher played in that change it, to some extent thatcher was engaged in what many people regard as the willful destruction of our manufacturing and engineering base in this country because that was also the place where trade unionism was at its strongest yeah certainly and um you know the argument has been made that margaret thatcher was a small um state prime minister and certainly she wanted she wanted a libertarian form of of uh, market, you know, she wanted to smash the unions. She wanted to, um, you know, remove bureaucracy, supposedly. But fundamentally, Margaret Thatcher used the full tools of the state in order to execute her agenda, and in the process, really uh, fundamentally changed the way in which the British state operated in the British economy. Um, and the nature of of the market and and the prosperity of these of of northern um, towns, Midlands, Wales across the country, really. So you, you went from you know a highly uh, unionised form of labour in these places, um, in do- industries that were backed up by the state, in some cases subsidised by them, and then once the state retrenched, once the unions once the union power was really uh, reduced, the free market then stepped in and essentially concentrated the economy, concentrated um, the facets of um, the modern professional British um, economy in the place where it could make the most money, which was London. There was there was nothing that could bind um, industry or um, the general structure of the British economy to the North and the Midlands anymore, because these were declining. These were declining industries that needed state support in order to operate. And rather than 
putting in place government policies that may have helped to ease that transition uh, in former industrial areas to a new form of professional economy. She essentially let the market rip and the market decided that um, it didn't pay any, it didn't have any, um, it, it didn't need to compensate the North for its declining industries and that it could just concentrate um, all its resources down in the Southeast. You're listening to Adrian Goldberg here on Byline Radio with Sam Bright from the Byline Times. Sam is the author of a new book called Fortress London. And uh, this kind of post-industrial landscape that emerges then, Sam, driven partly by Margaret Thatcher's ideological ambitions, partly by if you like, the the natural market forces, so to speak. Mm. There was a correlation there with the south of England because Thatcher focused on the service economy, on financial products, where, of course, the City of London was already established. She introduced the Big Bang to the City of London, a much greater degree of freedom to London. So as the North and the Midlands of England decline, and indeed Wales and Scotland as well, those traditional industrial areas, Southern England is 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 enjoying boom time. Yeah, exactly. And particularly in incubating the property market, which is, I think many people would agree, the worst excess of the capital and probably of, of, of modern Britain now. So as you say, it was it was based heavily around finance, consultancy, um, law. Um, and within that, you sort of, you, you got the media really focusing its attention on these new sites of uh, modern British industry and, and the economy. So you really got, rather than the media covering the minor stri- a minor strike in Yorkshire, for example, they really filtered down to London and started covering what was happening in Canary Wharf and the city of London and and uh, you know the yuppie culture of uh, of the nineteen of the nineteen eighties. So as a result, you've sort of had the media concentrated in the all powerful capital, which has really reduced its gaze on the rest of the rest of the country. And then if you think of the other facets of, of Britain that have concentrated here as well, so you know you've got politics, the arts, um, all manner of cultural institutions. Um, down here. And this has been really buttressed by state spending. I mean, um, government spending in infrastructure projects, in transport, has been disproportionate in London in recent decades. Uh, I believe I'm right in saying that over the past decade, transport spending in London has been double the England-wide average. And so, in many ways, this is this is understandable. This is just uh, natural uh, economics. You know, when people flock to one place, you you physically have to build the infrastructure, uh, you have to build the homes to uh, accommodate that number of people, and you also get a lot of um, predatory actors um, who will try and take advantage of that. So, you know, in the case of the London housing crisis, you've got lots of um, offshore wealth that has been piled into building luxury development properties that. Um, are then rented out for massive amounts of money, while relatively little social housing or housing for for more deprived Londoners has been has been built. But the fundamental point is that the British state hasn't sought to ta- to counteract this process really at any point, even during the New Labour years. You know, Blair was, I think, a big, uh, you know, obviously was big into globalisation, believed that the British economy had to move with liberal financial markets. He incubated the financial sector probably as much as as Margaret Thatcher. And so it's only now, you know, 40, 50 years on, that we've got a government that, uh, in rhetoric at least, if not in practice, has thought, oh gosh, maybe uh, the, the state should act as a counterbalance to these forces rather than spurring um, an even an ever more uh, concentrated um, locus of power in the capital. Mm. We're going to take a couple of calls in a moment, Sam, from Davy Moore and Therapy. But just one little anecdote from my own personal experience, which illustrates two of the things, two for the price of one that you're talking about. This massive spending 
on transport infrastructure in London. And people will look at the billions spent on Crossrail. Now, there may well be a good argument for Crossrail if you live in London. But where I live in the West Midlands, we have at the moment just one tram route linking Birmingham and the Black Country. Just one. Mm. And it isn't working. It doesn't work at the moment. The trams are off because of safety considerations. So yeah, we, we have a pitifully weak transport infrastructure. And I think this is true. Maybe Manchester may be a, a little bit different because it does have quite a sophisticated and extended tram network. Parts of Glasgow do as well. But certainly the West Midlands where I live is it's just, it's just woeful mm. in terms of public transport. So there's that issue. But then the media issue, the, the focus on it. So a few weeks ago, Radio 4's Today programme, which is now rotating around the country at, at fairly regular intervals, and that's, that's a good thing to be encouraged. But their programme, which was broadcast from Birmingham, did not cover that issue of the trams, which is the biggest single political issue mm. that there is in the West Midlands at the moment. And it didn't, because what it's doing is simply transplanting the agenda of Westminster, the agenda of London, and talking about it, from Birmingham in the West Midlands, but it's not talking about what really matters to people in the West Midlands. So you've, you, you've got those two issues there, lack of uh, public infrastructure spending and also a media focus that is elsewhere and does not hold these things in the regions to be of significant importance to, to air before a national audience. Anyway, let's go and get some of your calls. Let's speak to therapy. Hello, therapy. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me on. Um, I first just a disclosure I'm not English I'm actually Norwegian so um my my question would be to Sam because in in the book um you've written a lot about the kind of centralized structures in 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 London how how it can but I was wondering if you ever did a comparative analysis to other countries who also have a similar problem with like centralizing the the courts of power and and kind of destabilizing the rural countries because we've we had the same movement in the 80s and the 90s in norway where everything was centralized and it keeps being it, it keeps doing that but what that forced was a kind of a larger spectrum of political standpoints which widened the spectrum of who people voted for and therefore changed the narrative and forced our uh, forced our government to reinvest in the rural districts because the power was not the the, the government power was not centralized in, in the big cities anymore so i was just wondering if you if you looked at kind of solutions to the problem mm. uh, in addition to actually kind of enlightening what problems you do have yeah absolutely that's yeah a big focus of the latter um portion of the book so comparatively you know i looked at france and germany um in particular um france has a very similar problem to us the center of paris um it's, it's actually remarkable how similar the center of paris is to, to london in terms of its demographic diversity and also it's um it's a concentration of national wealth and I have to say that there's relatively little enlightenment from from France. I think this is a big reason why Marine Le Pen has been successful because um, she's very popular in the Rust Belt of France, in you know, in areas, um, you know, in sort of agricultural areas that have been left behind, where people have flocked to metropolitan areas. So Germany um, typically um, does things a lot better. I think. For one, Germany has sort of devolved many um, many of its national assets to different to different centres. So Frankfurt's obviously the financial centre. You've got Berlin, that's the political and the cultural centre. Um, you've got the um, industrial areas of Dortmund um, and the likes, and the Rhine in the west. Um, and so you have a much you have a much better balance in the German um, economy. You also have far better, as, as Adrian was saying, you have far better transport links between the cities, cheaper transport links. Um, as Mary Cray, the former Wakefield uh, MP, said to me, there is, there is no social mobility without transport mobility and without education. And um, Germany as well um, is notable in terms of its, um, the degree of state spending that is channeled through 
local and regional governments. And in particular, Germany has large uh, regional governments that aren't really seen in this country. We we tend to model ourselves on the um, on the mayoral model in the United States and in France, which focuses uh, focuses on um, city regions, whereas Germany has much broader areas. And I looked at some research from the IPPR that say that um, if we if we sort of split um, if we split the country up, if we split England up into the north, the Midlands, the southeast, and the southwest in terms of administrative and economic blocks, that will be far more effective in terms of being able to cohere policies that will make sense over those geographic areas and give political clouts to areas outside um, the southeast. One of, one of the big suggestions that I have, which I doubt is ever going to be executed, but nonetheless, we should try, is that we should move Parliament out of London. That is that is the one that is sort of the one facet of national life that politicians really have power over is where politics is based. You know, it's very difficult to shift the locus of financial power away from Canary Wharf and the City of London. You'd have to impose vast regulations to do so and make the market uncompetitive. But to move Parliament would be relatively easy compared to that. Um, and I suggest Leeds as one possible destination, I'm sure. Asian would lobby for Birmingham and there'd be, you know, a healthy debate around that. But if that happened, if Parliament moved, you'd see civil servants move and um, you'd see journalists move. You'd see outsourcing companies move. And it would just, you know, regardless of the symbolism, I really think it would create this new economic powerhouse in a different part of the country on top of signaling that politics was keen on uh, on um, getting closer to the people. Um, so I think it, I think it's a no-brainer, personally. Oh, that's a fascinating idea, Sam. Actually, and uh, as you say, I'd probably lobby for Birmingham. But I also <laughs> do think that as a gesture, as a sign, as a symbol, that leveling up, which is the, you know, the current buzzword for something that comes in and out of fashion with successive governments, but as a, as a as a symbol of sincere intent moving Parliament out of London, particularly when we've got this, these massive bills, by the way. I mean, the billions of pounds are going to have to be spent making Parliament habitable again, mm. you know, because it, basically it's falling down. Mm. That money could be much more wisely spent elsewhere. I'm not suggesting that Parliament should be allowed to fall into rack and ruin, by the way, <laughs> but at, at the same time, I, I think what a symbol it would be for our nation to say mm. Parliament is going to be somewhere else, even if it was only somewhere else, let's say, for six months of the year, you know, for half the sittings, it would say something meaningful, I think, to this country. But it, as you say, it's something that uh, politicians are highly unlikely to do but you never know go on uh, therapy you wanted to say something else yeah uh, no i just uh, one of one of the questions that that pops up yeah. when it comes to especially france and germany and, and norway as well for, for that particular matter is that moving parliament out of um our, our biggest capital is it is it's a sim it's a symbolic thing of course but one of the things that also changes if you move parliament you change the narrative as well um, and one of the things that Germany and France have been advocating is the fact that um, rather than a socialist inclusion dialogue, when it comes to to, to the narrative of, of bringing all the kind of the rural districts um, throughout Germany, France, Norway, Britain, so on and so forth, to, to, to make sure that everyone's included, it rather leans towards a more nationalistic dialogue and a nationalistic kind of um the conversation doesn't necessarily fall to social inclusion throughout the country, but more on a nationalistic virtue. And Le Pen and a lot of other right-wing um, uh, uh, governmental parties in all, in all these countries that have been mentioned kind of channel that narrative instead of a social inclusion narrative. And I think mm. that's one of the main problems but as well. Uh, sorry, I'm not sure I quite understand that, though. Are you saying that moving Parliament plays to that nationalistic sentiment or leaving it in London plays to that nationalistic sentiment? 
I don't think necessarily one excludes the other. Yeah. I, th- I think I, th- I think it's moving parliament or not moving parliament in either country. I can't speak for Britain in myself, but in either country, I don't think it changes the narrative unless we can change the change the narrative across Europe for social inclusion rather than nationalism. I think mm. that's one of the main it, problems as well. I mean, it, it, I mean, of course, you know, it is only one thing, but in itself. It is a gesture of social inclusion, isn't it? It may only be a gesture, but it's it's a powerful gesture. And it's, it's one that, as Sam says, would have uh, economic spin-offs as well for wherever the home of the new parliament was. Absolutely. One of the things that, that kind of I understand completely is moving parliament would move the power structures of the big companies who invest in certain countries and have their main offices in certain countries and so on would definitely make them move and outsource more which will strengthen the districts but it's just i think whoever if you move it from london to say birmingham leeds or so on i think it will be symbolic but whoever doesn't get it will sit mm-hmm. back and say they lost yeah i th- i think i think it's i think it's a very good point actually i think it's the way in which it's done um, i think a lot of the brexit argument and the argument to the red wall seems to be as though we want to punish metropolitan areas, you know, that that London, as, as you say, Adrian, I mean, I, I, I agree to some extent with your introduction, but also the fact that London has been a parasite. I, I'd say that, you know, lots of people, particularly oligarchs in London, um, have been parasites. And in many ways, London is carnivorous. But also, I think if you emphasise the fact that moving parliament and moving economic power would benefit substantially ordinary Londoners, you could hopefully cohere a more inclusive form or a more inclusive conversation with regards to regional inequality rather than one that seems like we're playing top trumps of one area versus another. I mean, I, it just seems... Uh, so- Sam, Sam, I think that's a really interesting point, actually. I, I do want to bring in a, a contributor called Davey Moore in a moment, Davey. I haven't forgotten you. I think that's a really interesting point, and also therapy makes this point, because living in Birmingham, I don't want to be jealous mm. that Leeds has got Channel 4. I don't want to be jealous that Manchester has got Media City. As somebody who loves this country, I want to, and, and who loves the, the great cities of this country, I want to be able to celebrate that diversity i want to be able to think oh yeah leeds has got stuff going on manchester's got stuff going on but at the moment so many of these gifts are in the uh, the, the, so many of these treasures are in the gift of central government aren't they so that at the moment when these prizes are offered it does very often feel like a beauty contest Mm. you know which which group of mps can lean most heavily on the government of the day and this is not specifically about this government so that so little is actually given out and these they're kind of doled out as prizes for for being a good boy and it pits one regional uk city against another Mm. and I'd, i'd like to think that we could change the narrative about that so that we can all celebrate the success and the good that is in, uh, you know, is across the UK. Uh, let's bring in Davey Moore. Hi. Oh, actually, Sam, before I do, Davey, sorry. So I just want your phrase that London is a parasite on the UK. Fascinating. Go on, explain that, Sam. Well, that was your phrase, Adrian. I was, I was challenging, I was challenging you. Don't, don't ascribe that to me. <laughs> but all, all, all I was going to say was that housing, housing in, in particular for for London, I think, is a, is a big one. If you said to Londoners, "Look, if we redistributed power to Leeds, your house prices would get cheaper," the immediate full support from Londoners, I think you'd get you'd get ninety percent of the vote in London. But no one's making that argument because they prefer to have a culture war. Um, but anyway, <laughs> but 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 also, if you said to people in in London, on and so much of this is how you frame things. If you said to people in London, "We're going to make your housing cheaper," hooray! We'll pay. I'll vote for that. By the way, we're going to make your housing cheaper because house prices might fall. Oh, no, I'm not gonna, I mean, you know, so many people are, are invested, literally invested in the ridiculous, unaffordable level of housing in the capital. Uh, Davey Moore, you've been waiting so patiently. Hello, Davey. Welcome along. Hello. Thank you. Um, nice to speak to you all again. Um, as you can probably tell from my accent, I'd love it if Parliament moved to Leeds because it would mean that I'd be able to shout abuse at Boris Johnson from my balcony. <laughs> <laughs> I think, like, when it comes to... 
what we're talking about, it's all really interesting. There was a lot of stuff that you covered at the start in particular, Sam, that really interested me because I, I did I grew up in the countryside, like in the sticks. Mm. And I think a lot of the problems that we face with trying to capture people from there to vote for a more progressive party is that that like you fall victim to the I, I don't know any foreign people, so I don't know that they're nice people kind of thing. You know, like when I moved to Leeds, mm. I had two ways to go down, which was double down on all of the rhetoric that I've been fed my entire life or be like, let's find out what people are like that aren't from the village I come from. Mm. And that did me the world of good because, you know, like it's, it opened me up to politics. It made me fierce anti-racist. Um, I was already like fairly progressive because I'm a homo. But um, like exploring that, at university and meeting people was really interesting. And I think that people from the countryside don't get afforded that luxury because they're just in their little, their little shed, you know, their little separated part where they don't get to experience these things. So they can believe the bad things. But I think that that is reflected on a macro scale with the whole thing we're talking about now. Parliament's based in this rich affluent bit of London. They get all this money for this rich affluent bit of London. Everything gets done up nicer and nicer there. So how can the rest of the country be struggling? Because they don't see it. So, Surely the solution would be decentralised parliament. Don't have it in just London. Don't just have it in Leeds. Have it mm. in every single city so that people that are making legislative decisions about the country get to see it. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I, I I completely agree. And your points on um, people sort of innate ignorance, I think, uh, are really perceptive. And I think actually there's... I think it's not people's ideologies that we've got to <clears throat> change necessarily. Because if you look at all the polling and if you speak to people, you know, if you sit down and have a conversation with, with them about, you know, about immigration or, you know, people on benefits or whatever, you see that people are actually far more tolerant and liberal than the media portrays. I think we saw that in particular during the World Cup. We saw this sort of progressive patriotism that was sort of was celebrating England's diversity and standing up for um, the rights of minorities, um, but also being, you know, pretty unequivocal about our sense of national pride. And I think that's, that's pretty, that's a unifying feature of our country. The issue comes, as you say, that people sort of exist in their own silos at the minute. And that form of social separation breeds I think, distorted perceptions of our fellow man. So I think that people living in London think that Northerners are old, bigoted racists. And there are no doubt that, you know, a degree of xenophobia did motivate the Brexit campaign. But, you know, I, I like to take the optimistic view, and I think the polling bears this out, that people are more tolerant th than we think. And I think that people in the North, likewise, think that people living in cities and living in London are woke snowflakes because they've got they've got no social contact. Like you say, they've not been to the they've not been to university. They've not experienced a university city and the brilliance that diversity um, can present. And so all that they're absorbing about the life of liberals, the life of the big city is what GB News and the Daily Mail is spouting, which is obviously a gross distortion of the reality of modern Britain. So either through, you know, a change in the media landscape or, you know, a change in the social mixing of people, I think those are kind of the two components that will ultimately help to, to fix this problem. I think that's something that's really important. The idea of like improving travel infrastructure was something that was as boring as it sounds, it was really important to me. And I didn't mm. think HS2 was a good idea because the way that they were, the way they were looking at doing it just didn't really seem feasible to me but the fact that they just went yeah we're not going to do it and we're also not going to make any of the plans it's like you know like like not to get all kiss ass for a second but byline has like inspired me to want to be a journalist eventually freelance who speaks about politics it's what i've dedicated a lot of my spare time to and i keep saying to people it's inevitable that i'm going to have to move down to london Mm. because how am I going to do that from up here? I, I can't touch on politics if I'm not in, in the thick of it, not to use that phrase, but mm. it's it's impossible. But it's also impossible to get any of the real opportunities that are, are much easier for people in a metropolitan hub like London. And I'm in, I am in the city centre of Leeds right now. But what real opportunities for me are there when it comes to that kind of role? Because 
a political correspondent who lives on the outskirts of Leeds is going to be able to talk about exactly what it doesn't work. Yeah, no, I entirely agree. It's mirrored, uh, Sam, and again, you've got some great statistics about the the number of people. Thank you for that, Davey, by the way. It's really uh, worth waiting for and good, good, uh, good contribution. Thank you. Uh, So these statistics around the amount of private sector employment in London vis-a-vis the rest of the country, something like 30 percent of the private sector jobs in this country are in London, even though it only is home to 15% of the population. I mean, it's, uh, you know, in its own terms, London is this huge success story, but at least part of this story is, and you've touched on it with the transport issue, is that it isn't simply market forces. And I, I come back to the political decisions that have weakened the Midlands and the North, but also the spending and the political decisions which have helped to support and, and prop up London and the South East. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And the, and the thing is that it's not just sort of media and, and politics that's really concentrated, as you say. I mean, I, I spoke to Nazir Afsal, who was former chief prosecutor for um, the North West um, for the book. And he, he, was, he was sharing exactly the same reflections in relation to law. He was like, you know, especially when he was doing his training, um, if you weren't working in London, you weren't taken seriously. And he said, even now, his his main piece of advice for uh, a lawyer growing up in in the Northwest is get yourself down to London at some point during your career. I mean, fortunately for the legal profession, it's one of the few industries that can probably afford uh, the massive uh, the massive rents demanded from from London. But for plenty of other professions, that's not possible. In particular, early career opportunities. Um, so like for, for many professional occupations now, you have to do an internship tour, um, to get yourself on the ladder and you know, who's going to fork out thousands of pounds in rent, um, for those internships, which are essentially speculative. You might, or you might not get a job at the end of it. I mean, I I tell the story in, in my book, um, that I was given my sort of break in journalism was a two week work experience program. Um, after I graduated university at the BBC and the BBC offered me no compensation for traveling down from Huddersfield and working in London for two weeks. So I, you know, I, I paid, I shelled out for my, my travel as Andy Burnham has been highlighting recently, the, the sort of extortionate cost of tra- travel down to London, you know, an Airbnb, all my food, etc. And, you know, that racked up to seven, several hundred quid. I think it was like 700, 800 pounds and plenty of people from the north either aren't willing or simply just aren't able to spend that sort of money on you know speculatively shooting for their dream down in the big city and so they just they don't they and those opportunities are reserved to people who um can live at home and can go on an internship tour of the capital um in the faith that you know they they won't have their bank account drained by a landlord and that creates that I think that creates a really serious generational um, problem in terms of social mobility, um, and then ultimately in terms of wealth distribution between London and elsewhere. Yeah, and uh, again, the statistics on this are really startling, aren't they? Child poverty in northeast England increased from twenty six percent in twenty ten to thirty six point nine. So you've got more than a third of children in northeast England in poverty, while in the southeast it fell. And we know that that kind of poverty ultimately is linked to social outcomes, economic outcomes. So, I mean, I mean you've got to say, in fairness to the government, you know, the, the language of levelling up, the language that, that at least recognises this is a problem is there because it's a question about you know what in practical terms mm. are they doing about it but there is a recognition in government that that something is going badly wrong in terms of inequality in this country yeah i mean the thing is you know you've got to as uh, you know as we have looked at you know the as you've just quoted adrian the record of the past couple of conservative governments they've really made things worse in terms of uh, structural uh, inequality, regional inequality. Um, 
the the areas outside of the southeast are really reliant on key workers on you know people who work in social care the nhs education etc etc you know the lifeblood of of our country as we've come to recognize during the pandemic um and yet government austerity disproportionately affected these people it affected people working for the state because there was a there was a freeze in in um in salary increases for for state employees um and it affected people who were on the sort of the breadline on the margins of maybe claiming some benefits whilst working on a freelance basis you know we see massive increases in food bank usage um I saw a stat earlier, actually, Adrian, from my own book that I forgot that I put in there. But 74% of impoverished families in, in London, in the capital, are in working households. And that replicates across the country. So, you know, although the government is, you know, rightly focusing its rhetoric on this issue so far, um, it, I mean, I, I struggle to believe it will even reverse the damage that Theresa May and David Cameron's governments managed to impose on the country. Never mind take the country back to a previous point in history where the North was was flourishing. I just don't see that being the case. And especially, I mean, the Northern Powerhouse Partnership has identified the fact that Boris Johnson, under his current proposals, plans to spend less on regional development in England than both David Cameron and Theresa May. So it's at this stage, levelling up is is completely um, vacuous. And we've only got two years before the next general election. Before we crack on with Sam Bright, just a reminder that you're listening to Byline Radio. My name's Adrian Goldberg, or you might be listening on Catch Up by the Byline Times podcast. And we're broadcasting this on Tuesday, the 26th of April. I don't normally... Uh, date stamp these broadcasts but uh, just to say that's relevant because coming up this weekend if you're listening live or in the day or two after we're live coming up this weekend there is the byline festival and it's an absolutely brilliant gathering of people in london it has to be said at portobello road ackland village market in north kensington and it's a brilliant festival a mix of inquisitive journalism free speech comedy, music, and all-round entertainment. Some wonderful guests on offer over that weekend. Rio Ferdinand, Joanna Scanlon, Sanjeev Buskar, Jonathan Pye, the filmmaker, Asif Kapadia, Don Letts, the brilliant DJ, Carol Cadwallader, Bonnie Greer, Lord Alf Dubbs, Peter York, Dawn Butler MP, Peter Jukes, the co-founder of Byline Times, Luke Harding, Peter Tatchell, the Citizens of the World Refugee Choir. And uh, I think I'm going to be there on the Saturday. It is in London, I know, which is slightly ironic. Mm. That we're having, but, <laughs> but it'll be brilliant. So if you want more details on that, and it is going to be a great weekend, go to bylinefestival.com. That's bylinefestival.com. And if you can't make it down, don't worry, there are going to be virtual tickets available as well, so you can watch online at Byline TV. So uh, well worth catching. Uh, Sam Bright is with us. He's the author of Fortress London. And we're talking about whether London has a disproportionate power in the land. And I think Sam and I both think pretty clearly that it does. How that's come about and what we can do about it. I'm going to talk about solutions, Sam, before the yeah. end, but I do, I do want to throw one other thought into the mix. And it's been really interesting to me, you know, as, as a, an avid reader of local newspapers all around the UK, how region after region after region has clocked on to the fact that infrastructure funds, which the government promised would match those of the European Union, have region by region by region come to disappoint. There have been headlines in Cornwall, headlines in the West Midlands, headlines all over the place pointing out that the settlement for big infrastructure projects from central government, from Whitehall, despite promises, does not match European funding, mm. European infrastructure funding. And that for many people, the post-Brexit dividend that they hope for, particularly in the red wall of the Midlands and the North, simply isn't there. And Brexit was seen as an opportunity, wasn't it, for for these these places, these, for want of a better phrase, left behind places to perhaps get a little jolt forward. But the evidence, and particularly in relation to these big infrastructure projects, the evidence strongly suggests otherwise. 
God, yeah. I mean, we did a bit of work on this uh, last week, which you might have seen, Adrian. The um, so the 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 European scheme that we've replaced typically spent one point five billion pounds a year in UK regions, and we're only spending two point six billion in total over three years. Um, so you know that that all that all convert to considerably um, less than European Union funding, and I think you know partly this was. A problem of politics with the European Union. I think it didn't do enough to um, to demonstrate to people, to show to them, to really flaunt what it had done and what it was doing to help to improve um, poorer regions of of the UK. But like you say, I think the the government has now sort of dilute. And this is what Andy Burnham said to me when I spoke to him for my book um, that that Levin Up's really been diluted. From this government, it's sort of been stretched beyond um, its sort of rational boundaries in the fact that Johnson now talks about leveling up the home counties and he talks about leveling up the southeast. It, it's it's become a catch-all term um, for people, as, as you said earlier, Adrian, um, to get there to stick their hand in the pot and get a portion of funding for their constituency. And we've seen a lot of this um, in keeping with, you know, the the general trend of this conservative government, that a lot of this leveling up funding has been directed towards conservative constituencies. And um, that's not least, Sam, because there has been a political cost, hasn't there? The I think it was the Amersham by-election, wasn't mm-hmm. it, that leveling up was seen as one of the reasons that changes to planning regulations was was one of the reasons the Tories were reckoned to have lost the Amersham by-election, the idea that it would be easier to build and a kind of NIMBY factor resisting that, but also this idea that's gained hold that levelling up would be paid for by rifling the pockets of people in London and the South East. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. There is a real political cost, and I think the blue wall is one to really keep in mind for the next election, you know, political observers, because the Liberal Democrats are mounting mounting a charge in some of those um, rural conservative constituencies in the home counties in the South. Lots of, I mean, HS2 has been branded as sort of a London versus the North issue, but lots of these constituencies, sort of um, Cotswolds constituencies that HS2 will run through are really peeved off about the change in the landscape um, that HS2 might bring about. Um, and so, yeah, Johnson's trying to trying to cut his losses on that front. I think he sees, he perhaps sees the Red Bull as relatively safe ground for him now. I think he recognises that he'll probably lose some of those seats at the next election, but he can he can play culture wars to an extent to pe- appeal to those voters in the red wall, and that he really needs to make sure that he's not seen to be um, to be pitting his northern ambitions against um, the Tory strongholds in the south. I mean, we saw remarkably the um, the Shropshire by election where Owen Paterson, who was of course um, accused of of lobbying on behalf of a private company and stepped down as an MP. His huge majority um, slipped away to the Liberal Democrats. And I'm sure there were plenty of uh, alarm bells going off in, in Downing Street at that prospect. And as a result, he's, I think he's warped his loving up agenda to something that, it, that, that no one in the, in the North really wants and um, certainly he didn't intend in the first place. Yeah, I suppose if, if if we're also levelling up the home counties, the idea of levelling up is becomes rather meaningless, doesn't it? Exactly. Um, you mentioned Andy Burnham, and I know there's a piece currently up at bylinetimes.com in which you've talked about, or Andy Burnham's talked about, rewiring our democracy, the current regional mayor of Manchester. Uh, how do we go about resolving these issues that you've identified in your book, Sam? Well, exactly. I think this is a, a key question for the Labour Party, because if we recognise that, you know, if Boris Johnson remains in power or someone similar to him, that levelling up isn't going to be fulfilled or, you know, it's going to be insubstantial, then we've got to talk about the Labour Party. If it manages to win an election anytime soon, um, who knows, um, you know, wilder things have happened, then what exactly does the Labour Party want to do, both politically to sort of appeal to the red wall but then empower what does it what does it really how is it going to change things in a way that's more substantial than the conservatives and i think there's two there's two um strains of thought in the labor party that i've managed to discern through through the book one is 
um, sort of an alliance between Burnham and the likes of Clive Lewis, who really believe that you need structural democratic reform in the UK to, one, separate Labour from the Conservative Party. Um, They don't believe that you can simply just promise to spend more than the Conservatives on infrastructure, for example, and appeal to um, northern constituencies. They say that we, we need to promise radical devolution um, to um, to local areas and to, to regional governments. And Burnham in particular has proposed proportional representation um, for general elections um, on a regional basis, similar to the system that used to that used to exist in European Parliament elections, um, where you had uh, you had uh, regional MEPs elected, and he's also proposed um, essentially abolishing the House of Lords and replacing it with a, an elected Senate from the nations and regions to ensure more of a balance, more of a geographical balance in the heart of in the heart of power. Um, I'd say that the other strain of thought is a bit more conservative and probably because they've got the hands on the, the hands on the levers of power within the Labour Party, which I think they're kind of hoping that their closeness to former industrial areas um, and their perception will allow them to make a nuanced argument that, lay, that the Tories have not fulfilled the levelling up agenda and that Labour through spending more wisely and empowering local communities, that only that only the Labour Party can deliver and um, the rebalancing of Britain. I would personally say that that argument is probably a bit too, it's a bit too close to the Tories um, and Labour won't differentiate itself. I'm certainly more inclined for the Berman Clive Lewis um, strategy, not least because of what we've seen in democracy over the past few weeks and this vast concentration of power in Downing Street in one man, I think that's a perfect argument alongside the regional benefits for really a, sh- a massive shake-up in our democratic settlement. Mm. And uh, implicit in this conversation, Sam, I'll end on this point because uh, we want to encourage people to read the book. We're not going to uh, go through every chapter <laughs> in the book, but it's a, it's a great read. Fortress Britain by uh, Fortress London. I will get it right. You've got that on your head, Adrian. It's lodged there now. You're never going to be able to move it. Thanks. <laughs> Fortress London by Sam Bright. Um, but we're talking, I think, implicit in this conversation is that this is sort of a discussion about England, really, because Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland all have devolution to an extent. But does your argument impact upon those parts of the UK? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a there's a massive source of resentment currently, both in Scotland and Wales. I'd say, you know, growing, we, we saw this during the Scottish independent debate, which is ongoing. Um, a resentment that London, particularly in terms of politics, controls the destiny um, to a large extent of those two nations. Um, you know, it resents the fact that this Tory cabal in Downing Street has, you know, powers over, you know, taxation, foreign policy, you know, plenty of um, home affairs um, issues. When when um, Scotland and Wales have consistently voted for the Labour Party, voted again, you know, Wales voted in favour of Brexit, but Scotland by uh, a large uh, majority voted against Brexit. And so I think there is a real sort of um, consideration now of like of where those those nations go and whether a democratic settlement can be reached between London and Edinburgh and London and Cardiff. Or whether we will just see the inexorable—that's the word I was searching for, Adrian—rise um, of nationalist feeling in those countries, which will eventually spill over into independence. And I think that's still a conversation that's ongoing. And again, it's one that the Labour Party hasn't had uh, in recent times either, since it lost Scotland effectively to the Scottish National Party. I think you're on mute, Adrian. No, no, yeah, no, I knew that. I, did, I just couldn't move your fingers quickly enough. <laughs> let's get, let's get, because I was letting beast mode into the conversation. Hello, beast mode. How are you? It's, it's fast becoming a golden rule of these broadcasts, Sam, that people are joining right at the end. Mm. 
really not worth listening to. So there we go. Goodbye go. to Beast. Hello and goodbye to Beast Mode. And listen, uh, our other callers were terrific, though. So thank you uh, to Davey. Thank you to Therapy. And thank you to you, Sam Bright. Been brilliant to chat with you. We can read much more of Sam, both at bylinetimes.com and in our monthly newspaper, The Byline Times, which does have quite a lot of exclusive content that you don't get online. But the news-breaking stuff tends to be at bylinetimes.com. But do take out a subscription, if you can, to The Byline Times, as I say, as exclusive content. And by taking out a subscription, you're helping to support the website, Byline TV, Byline Radio, and The Byline Times podcast. So your money really does go a long way. Sam's book, and who knows, I might possibly get this right, <laughs> right at the very end of this, is called Fortress London, uh, to save the country from its capital. And it's published by Harper North, and it's out this week. Thanks very much indeed, Sam. We'll speak to you again soon, but uh, really appreciate your time, mate. See you soon. Thank you. Cheers, Adrian.